Let's start with some music. I won't say who the composer is or what the piece is. I'll leave it to you to see what you can infer. Well, to me, that's very clearly late romantic music. It's very sensuous and intensely expressive. If you look at the score, you can see it's covered with expression markings, very warm, full of expression, and at the climax, sehr breit und mit größtem Ausdruck, very broad and with the most intense expression. The composer? Well, it's Anton Webern. It's an early piece we know simply as langsamer Satz, slow movement for string quartet. And if that comes as a bit of a surprise, that may be because you associate Webern with something 
more like this, written just eight years later. So how did Webern get from that sumptuous slow movement for string quartet that we heard first to the music we've just heard? That's the first of the five pieces for orchestra. Well, I think there is a direct connection. They're both very much the same composer with the same preoccupations, just different ways of expressing them. Webern wrote those two pieces, respectively, in 1905 and 1913. Now, that was a period of immense change in music, just as in society in general. So many of the great innovators and revolutionaries in music started out, like Webern, as romantics. Stravinsky, for instance, first made world fame with the perfumed exoticism of his ballet, The Firebird. In fact, he covered his piano score, like Webern, with lavish expression marks. Then Stravinsky turned against that, and we have the cathartic violence of the Rite of Spring. And then he even turned against that. Now, in this piece, we find him wearing the totally impassive mask of neoclassicism. Stravinsky's jeu de cartes, a game of cards, that's what music has become for him, in effect. Not an emotional affair at all, but completely poker-faced, you might say. As different as possible from the Wagnerian, Marlerian emotional outpourings of Webern's early slow movement. So was Webern just like Stravinsky or Bartok or Schoenberg or any of those other seminal revolutionary figures who turned against early Wagnerian Romanticism? Well, Webern was a revolutionary, and for many listeners, he's one of the hardest of them all to follow. But he didn't achieve what he did simply by turning his back on romantic expression. He took a very different course. Let's look at a piece Webern wrote just three years after the early romantic slow movement for string quartet. It's the work he called his official Opus One, Passacaglia for orchestra. A Passacaglia is a very ancient form. Basically, the music is built up over a theme, usually in the bass, that repeats over and over again, a bit like the 12-bar bass in jazz. The passacaglia became a very important form in the Baroque era, 
but then it virtually died out in the classic and romantic periods that followed, that is, until the magnificent revival in the finale of Brahms's Fourth Symphony. In the Brahms, there's an eight-note theme. It's announced by the trombones at the very beginning, and then it's used as the basis for a superb series of variations. The finale of Brahms's Fourth Symphony was hugely influential and it spawned lots of imitators. You could say that Webern's Passacaglia is definitely one of them, and like the Brahms, it's based on an eight-note theme. Webern's Passacaglia is in the key of D minor, but there's one element in that eight-note theme that slightly upsets that sense of D minor as a home key. I can show you what I mean if I play you what Webern almost wrote. That's very nearly Webern's eight-note theme. But there's one note which is slightly different, the fourth note. It's not A, but A-flat. It shakes the tonal foundations. The ground doesn't feel quite so firm under our feet. eight-note theme constantly rotates all the way through Webern's Passacaglia. It's always there in the background somewhere, just as in the finale of Brahms's Fourth Symphony. But that intellectual framework also holds intense expression. Even without the expression markings on the page in front of you, you know Webern wants his climaxes mit größtem Ausdruck, with the greatest possible intensity of expression. But the tension between opposites isn't just in the Passacaglia framework versus emotional outpouring. The piece is very expansive and explosive on the emotional level, yet the drama is condensed into just ten minutes. It's as though someone has told you to tell the story of the most upsetting thing that ever happened to you in just two sentences. And there's another aspect of the limitation in this piece. The strings, and especially the brass, have their mutes on almost all the way through the Passacaglia, so that the intensity, which is sometimes marked FFF, fortissimo, strains against the physical limitation of the mutes. Sometimes it almost sounds like the screeching of steam through the safety valve of a pressure cooker. That volcanic emotion is fused with an equally powerful urge to condense, to concentrate. So here now is that extraordinary, compressed psychodrama, Webern's Passacaglia, Opus 1. 
Listen to the strings pizzicato at the beginning as they pluck out the theme of the basicalia. Once that's lodged in your mind, you'll be aware that it's there all the time in the background, no matter how convulsive the expression that's going on in the orchestra. This really is an almost classic example of the old idea of irresistible force meets immovable object.
Weyburn's Passacaglia, his official Opus One. That was written in 1908. In the following years, Weyburn wrote a piece that shows this extreme tension between expression and concentration even more strongly. It's the six pieces for orchestra. Weyburn uses huge forces. There are 15 woodwind brass, a huge percussion section and full strings. But it's not at all used as, say, Weyburn's hero Mahler would have used it. For instance, the trombones are only used together for five bars. Here's the second of those six pieces for orchestra. Well, if you thought the Passacaglia was concentrated, just listen to this. It lasts less than a minute and a half. The instrumental phrases are often very short, jagged leaps or tiny claustrophobic repetitions, and then come the explosions at the climax. That in itself is reminiscent of the Passacaglia, but here they're condensed into radically short outbursts, extreme contrasts in the shortest possible time span. of Webern's six pieces for orchestra is a little bit longer than that second movement we've just heard, and it's called Funeral March, a title which invokes comparisons with Mahler, and indeed Webern really does let loose his big forces at the climax in a rather Mahlerian way. There's also a very personal element behind this music. It turns out that Webern was still recovering from the aftershock of the death of his mother, and the very painful experience of attending her funeral. Maybe that left its mark on this music. Well, certainly the climax is extraordinary, a horrific build-up in which the full brass are let loose with terrifying power, though again, as so typical with Webern, they've all got their mutes on. For me, the most extraordinary moment of extreme compressed expression comes earlier in the funeral march. We hear low, quiet, sinister, keening lines from an alto flute, then a muted horn, then a muted trumpet. 
but listen to the repeated noise in the background. It's very quiet, muted trombones and tuba, followed closely by a thud on a bass drum. It's a tiny figure, but it's truly frightening. A friend of mine calls it the subterranean heartbeat. But even that kind of microscopic expression wasn't enough. Webern's pursuit of concentration and condensation grows ever more intense and obsessive. Why, you might ask? Well, the only thing I can offer, perhaps, is a story I heard about how Webern once went walking in his beloved alpine scenery with a fellow pupil of the great teacher Arnold Schoenberg, Alban Berg. Berg was a big, warm-hearted romantic at heart. The story is that Berg surveyed the magnificent scenery, drew a deep breath and said, Isn't it beautiful? And Webern picked up a tiny pebble and looked at it closely. Yes, isn't it? And I can't help thinking of that story whenever I hear the next piece. It's called Six Bagatelles for String Quartet. Now, Webern, by this stage in his career, was becoming quite a specialist at titles that give absolutely nothing away expressively. But it's not the denial or the rejection of intense expression that we met in Stravinsky's Jeu de Cartes. The six bagatelles may be tiny, they last less than five minutes in total, but now the music is full of tiny moments like that subterranean heartbeat, where, given a sympathetic performance, so much can be conveyed with this incredible radical economy. Webern's teacher Arnold Schoenberg wrote an enthusiastic, indeed almost gushing, tribute that was published in the score of the Six Bagatelles. Consider what abstinence is required to express yourself with such brevity. You stretch out every glance into a poem, every sigh into a novel, but to express a novel in a single gesture, a joy in a simple exhalation, such concentration can only be found in proportion to the absence of self-pity.
Webern's Six Bagatelles for String Quartet, Opus 9. There's that intense expressive concentration I've pointed out, single notes or chords, and it's heightened too by Webern's use of colour. You'll notice that each note almost has its different kind of sound. Notes are played on the bridge one moment, then on the fingerboard, then played in harmonics, then pizzicato. It's as though each note is a little world of meaning in itself, with its own kind of sound colour, with its own timbre. But there's something else happening in those bagatelles too, something that marked a kind of crisis for Webern in his compositional thinking. As I'm sure you'll have noticed, Webern's music since that opening slow movement for string quartet has got less and less tonal. There was that destabilizing A-flat in the Passacaglia, the extreme discords without resolution in the six pieces for orchestra, and then the dissonance is presented almost as just isolated moments with no continuation or preparation at all in the bagatelles. This concentration cost Webern intense effort. There's a problem here, you see. One of the most important things about tonality is that it gives music a reassuring sense of hierarchy. There's a home key and a home note, the tonic note of the piece. That's the sun, around which all the other notes of the scale rotate like the planets. But as Webern moves further and further away from tonality, that sense of hierarchy, of order in the cosmos, begins to break down. I'll show you what I mean. Here's a very clear tonal phrase from a famous hymn. It clearly begins and ends on the right chord. End of the phrase, you've come home. You know where you are. But in those bagatelles we've just heard, there's no sense of coming home at all. The final note may feel right as the final note, but it certainly isn't the tonic, it isn't the bass, it isn't the foundation of the music. The music in that sense doesn't have a foundation. And as Webern began to realise, if you break up that tonal hierarchy, what makes one note more important than another? Well, nothing. All twelve notes of the chromatic scale now have equal significance, equal possibilities. There's no longer any sense that one note is more important than another, that it has to follow another by some kind of musical law of gravity. So another kind of process began to make itself felt for Webern, but one which, as he worked it through, he seems to have found almost as baffling as some of his first listeners. As he wrote of the bagatelles, I had the feeling that once all the twelve notes had run out, the piece was finished. It sounds grotesque, incomprehensible, and it was extremely difficult. And yet Webern had to go even further, to push that concentration to the limit. One year later, in 1914, he wrote his three little pieces for cello and piano. 
and when Webern says little, he really means little. In the last of the three pieces, there are barely more than twelve notes, and each note or chord seems on the borders of silence. The silences themselves have been charged with even more meaning than the notes. I've heard this piece in concert several times, and I've even played it once, and I can assure you that each time when you get to the end, it feels like an eternity before the applause begins. Who would dare break a spell like this? Yes, that really is it. The last of Webern's three little pieces for cello and piano. It reminds me of another story, one told by Webern's publisher. He remembered seeing Webern composing in his summer house in the Alps. Webern stared at the page for what seemed like an eternity, seemingly immobile. Then he bent forward and wrote a tiny squiggle, and got up and went out. The publisher just had to rush in and find out for himself what the result was of such long mental labour, and he found it. Webern had written a single rest. Now, if you've been following the dates of the pieces we've heard so far, you'll have noticed there's a kind of weird historical parallel going on, as Webern gets more and more radical, more extreme in his concentration, more ruthless, you might say, almost to the point of extinguishing music altogether in those pieces for cello and piano. At the same time, Europe is moving towards the extreme carnage and dissolution of World War One. It was to be the end of the imperial Austria that had prevailed for centuries. The world Webern grew up in. After the war, the world was a very different place, and many composers at the time found themselves in a kind of crisis. What next? Webern found clues in what he'd already done, in that rotating eight-note passacaglia theme that binds everything together, even when tonality comes close to disintegrating, or in that very feeling that caused him such difficulty and perplexity in the bagatelles that once he'd gone through the twelve notes of the chromatic scale, he'd come to the end. It was Webern's teacher Schoenberg who goes down in the history books as having patented what came to be called the twelve-note method. But it's a system that could have been invented for Webern, and in a sense, in that experience he had while writing the six bagatelles, you could say he did invent it for himself. And in fact, to my ears, Webern makes that twelve-note method of organizing music much more his own than even Schoenberg did. 
I sometimes sense in Schoenberg's 12-note works that there's a strange split between the expressive side and the technical organising side, as though Schoenberg's being pulled in two different directions, or as though he's trying to impose a straitjacket on the music. You never sense that with Webern. Even so, it can be rather surprising how expressive Webern expected his post-war 12-tone pieces to be. The critic Peter Stadlin was also a pianist, who gave the first performance of Webern's Variations for Piano, which he wrote in 1935-6. Stadlin played them only after he had extensive coaching from Webern, and years later Peter Stadlin published a facsimile of Webern's annotated copy of the score, with all the scribbles and annotations he'd written there to help Stadlin get to the right spirit of the piece. This was including some quite detailed expressive markings. It seems that as with that subterranean heartbeat we heard in the six pieces for orchestra, a tiny gesture was still clearly meant to convey an enormous amount in emotional and imaginative terms. To give you some idea, we'll play now the first section of Webern's Variations for Piano, and as we play it, I'll read out the comments that Webern wrote on Peter Stadlin's score, so you can hear exactly which part of the music it is they refer to. A restrained cry of sorrow. Echo. Livening anew. More. Very expressive, especially the repeated notes. Like an improvisation, especially intense. In parenthesis, left hand like a mysterious drum beat. substantial. The first section of Webern's Variations for Piano. While most of the commentaries I've read on pieces like the Variations for Piano are dauntingly technical and pretty difficult to read, but according to Peter Stadlin, when he rehearsed that music with Webern, the composer never talked about the construction. What matters, he said, is how the piece should be played, not how it's made. 
Still, a word about construction may be helpful as we come to our last piece of music. That's partly because this shows a connection between the later radical and the young romantic Webern. Let's listen again to just the last two bars of that youthful slow movement for string quartet, the piece we heard right at the beginning of the programme. And listen to the way the two violins and the viola overlap with a tiny three-note phrase. It's a very close imitation, slotted together so tightly it's almost like the pieces of a Chinese puzzle. Well, something very similar happens right through the first movement of Webern's Symphony of 1928. Of course, being a Webern symphony, it's much shorter than the average work of that title, and it's scored for a very small orchestra. Clarinet, bass clarinet, two horns, harp, and strings without double basses. But the music is full of overlapping, interweaving canons and short figures, just like at the end of that slow movement for string quartet, only now they're distributed amongst the instruments, so that the colour is always changing, just as it was in the last of those bagatelles for string quartet we heard earlier. And yet even so, you can still hear that overlapping and interweaving at work. Now in that performance it's all very clear, you can hear that interlocking and mirroring going on without too much effort. But what would Webern have made of a performance like that? Would he have been aching for that kind of micro-concentrated but intense expression that he indicated to Peter Stadlin? Well, Stadlin remembers Webern's comment after Otto Klemperer gave a performance of the symphony in 1936. Klemperer apparently couldn't make head or tail of the music. And after Webern heard it, he unloaded angrily to Peter Stadlin. A high note, a low note, a note in the middle, like the music of a madman. So here's another performance of Webern's symphony, this time with a conductor very much schooled in the Viennese classic and romantic works that Webern loved so much and saw himself in direct lineage with. The conductor is Herbert von Karajan. Listen to how those high and low notes and all their complicated mirror relationships become lines in Karajan's performance. You can hear them breathing, sighing, even singing. Behind the crystalline elegance and precision, we can feel the intensity and extreme sensitivity and even the sensuousness of the slow movement for string quartet, the passacaglia and the six pieces for orchestra. It's all still there but fabulously concentrated. As Schoenberg so marvellously put it, we can hear a novel in a gesture, a world of feeling in a single breath. 